Happy New Year, and welcome to Season 2 of the Hammer and Umpire Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Weber. We flipped the calendar, so I'm starting Season 2. This is going to be Episode 1 of Season 2, I guess. <laughs> you know, I can do whatever I want. It's my podcast, right? So I've got a few interesting things for you, I think, this week. A couple of different things, too. I've got uh, uh, some some quiz questions from a recent uh, Referee Magazine NASO uh, quiz. I just do five of them. Um, we're going to talk about uh, climbing the ladder. Um, you know, I had a, a listener, Todd Egger, uh, ask me a few questions in, in an email, and I answer some of those. Um, interesting um, situation posed uh, by uh, courtesy runner and the new player DH rule and federation. You know, high school rules. Uh, also, I'm going to talk about preseason preparation, and I have a Interesting, I think. Uh, um, umpire Spotlight, uh, Major League Umpire Emmett Ashford. So sit back, make sure your speakers are working well and your earbuds are in tight for another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. The other day I got a listener email, one of the first that I've gotten from Todd Egger, uh, an umpire out of Alabama, and uh, Todd's part of the Facebook group, which um, I urge all of you to do as well. Um, and he sent this email, and this is what it said. He said, just listen to the latest pod, really enjoying it. Keep up the good work. I had an idea for a future subject for you. I'm going into my fifth year of officiating, but just my second year at the high school level. I've been fortunate enough to shoot up in my association to where my assigner trusts me to do big games in our area. I thought a good idea for a subject would be just that, ways to climb the ladder as a young umpire. Some will overlap with the latest pods such as appearance, rules, knowledge, etc., but also things like getting along well with partners, being punctual, not turning down assignments, and things like that. Just an idea I thought you might like. Keep up the good work, man. Well, first, um, thanks for the email, Todd. I really do appreciate it, and I urge anybody else to send me an email or tweet or or, or contact me via Facebook, whatever you want to do, and I'll be happy to um, look into whatever it is you might suggest for me. Um, as uh, Obviously, you're probably a big Alabama fan. I'm sure you um, appreciated your team's victory over the University of Michigan in the, in the, the Citrus Bowl. And that was fine with me because I went to Michigan State, so <laughs> that's all right, all right? And so and it didn't bother me in the least. Let's just put it that way, all right? But anyway, um, yeah, so I've talked about a few of these things in the past, like your appearance. Um, yeah, if you want to move up in whatever level you're at, I don't care if you're working, um, you know, Little League or you're, you're a collegiate umpire or, or somewhere in between, uh, you got to look the part and you got to look sharp, right? You got to your, your, your pants should be cleaned and pressed. Your shoes shouldn't be all dusty and everything. Um, should be, you know, shined and all that kind of stuff. Um, your shirt shouldn't be faded. Um, your gear should be in good shape. You got to look like you care because hopefully you do care and it shows. Um, even if you're working like three or four games, you know, um, in a day like in the summer and it's dusty and everything, man, you should have a towel or something and dust off those shoes before you go back out there. I'm not saying you got to polish them up in between and stuff like that, but you should look good every time because those people seeing you that next time, 
you know, they might be the same team, but there could be two brand new teams and two brand new coaches, and you never know who's sitting in the stands that might be watching. You know, maybe they're uh, the the kid on on a team is you know you know a college coach's kid, or somebody else that maybe has a little pull in in your local umpiring community. So look the part every time that you go out there. That's definitely important if you want to try to move up and get some other opportunities. You've heard the stories I've talked about with. Um, you know, famous umpires and things like that, the Hall of Fame umpires. And, you know, they're usually working these uh, lower levels like a lot of us do, you know. And um, somebody sees them and sees what they do. Obviously, they're they're making good calls and things on the field and looking the part that way. But they're probably looking like a, like a pro in some ways too, you know. Um, they're not looking like, you know, all shabby or something like that, all right. Rules knowledge. You know, I hear from my brother who, you know, does a lot of travel ball stuff with his son and daughter and everything. And there's a lot of umpires that think they know the rules or they don't or they just make stuff up, you know. You got to study your rule book or your rule books. Uh, you know, I, I do college and high school. And, um, you know, you got to know both of those and the differences, okay. And also you should know the pro rules because if you're working a tournament that does like USSA uh, rules and things like that or others do that as well, they use pro rules. So you got to kind of know pro, uh, federation, and collegiate NCAA rules and then the differences between those because even even so if you're working uh, college ball you know the differences between NCAA and NAIA rules I mean they have uh, different re-entry rules and uh, and mercy rules and different things like that that are different um, between those rule set um, even JUCO you know like here in, in Michigan uh, JUCO has a, a mercy rule you know after you know they got a, a 10 after 10 after um, 10 after 5 rule if you're working a doubleheader, which is nice sometimes, let me tell you. Um, they have that in NAI. They have a um, mercy rule um, after 7 innings. Um, but, you know, NCAA doesn't have that. I wish they did sometimes, but um, I don't think that's going to be coming anytime soon. All right? But anyway, you got to know what's going on there and um, and be confident with those things. And if you don't know, you you got to figure out a way to, to look it up or, or make sure you know it. Don't act like you know something and then you're wrong. Boy, that, that's a way to move down. Let's just put it that way, all right? So those things are certainly important. Um, if you're a high school umpire um, and you're trying to move up, you know, you're trying to work more varsity games. You're trying to work um, more of your state tournament games and move up that way eventually to get a state finals assignment. I mean, that's everybody's main goal, I would say, as a high school umpire. Um, then, yeah, those other things I just mentioned, those are certainly Im- important. But how you work with your partners and, and how you uh, support your assigner are, are vitally important as far as your ability to move up. So if partners are constantly giving you um, a good report to other others in, you know, other colleagues and to your assigners, like you're there on time, you know your stuff, you're ready to go, um, obviously you're making, you know, there's nothing that's going to, you know, I don't care how good you look, you could look great out there, but if you can't call balls and strikes well and you're missing safe and outs on the bases i mean you know it doesn't matter you could look like the the biggest pro in the world but you got to be able to do the job but usually the thing that separates guys is um they're able to do those things and do them well or do them a little bit better than other people and they're they're pros about it you know they even though they're an amateur they, they go about it in a pro kind of way you know they take care of business as as my um, main assigner bruce stone always talks about all right so um, that definitely is very important. Um, you know, if you're a high school umpire, you should be getting there at least 30 minutes before a game. 
That's what we talk about here. Um, you should be trying to do some kind of pregame. I don't care if you've even worked with the guy before. I mean, I have a regular partner that I, I work a lot of games with uh, during the high school season, and we still pregame some stuff, you know, just to make sure you're on the same page or if there's something a little different that you might want to try to work, all right? Um, obviously, if it's somebody you don't work with, you need to pregame. Even if you feel like, hey, we're both, you know, accomplished kind of guys and we know what we're doing, you don't want to be out on the field and something goes down that you could have talked about beforehand and you didn't do it, all right? So th those are the kind of things that will make it so you don't move up. Um, so you got to make sure that you're both on the same page there. Um, how do you handle your partners? I mean, some guys are easier to get along with than others. I I'd like to think I'm pretty easy to get along with. I mean, I'm sure I tick somebody off here and there. But, you know, there are those guys you work with that they're a little cocky or they think they know what they're doing and, and you know they kind of don't. You know, are you calling people out and stuff? Um, and that's a tough situation. I usually don't call people out on things too often unless it's a vital, a vital moment. All right. If somebody's like, you know, trying to get the resume out, basically their, their, you know, invisible resume and tell me how good they are and things like that. I mean, yeah, that's kind of annoying, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to like put them down or something like that, you know? Um, you know, being somebody that's easy to get along with is, um, is important. You know, you want to be that person that people want to work with that, uh, one is good on the field. I mean, that's number one. All right. So they, they know that if, if they're out there battling the game with you, cause it is sometimes a battle. You're, you're the, the two or, or, or more, if you got more partners, but usually a two man team and you're, you know, you're out there you know, fighting the war, I guess, right? So who do you want to go in the battle with? Uh, you want to be one of those kind of guys. But also you want to be the guy that, you know, I'm not saying you got to be the jokester and everything, but you want to be the guy that's uh, fun to be around, right? You know, it's fairly easy going. Um, takes things seriously, but, uh, you know, um, isn't too cocky or too serious. Um, you know, um, can admit when they have maybe made a mistake and try to, t try to get better. Um, and you want to be the kind of guy that, uh, that, um, uh, you want to, you know, if you want to go out to get something to eat or get a drink or something like that afterward, you're that kind of guy that they want to do that with, right? Or the kind of guy that they'll call, call at some point, ask a question or, or see what's going on, or they're happy to see you at, the at the association meeting or wherever you might, um, come together. You want to be that kind of guy. If you're that kind of guy, it's going to be easier to move up. Because people want to work with those guys. You got to still have the skills. You got to be always trying to improve. You got to be always studying your rule book and your mechanics and going to camps and doing all those things too. Because that's what, um, you know, that's the way you move up with your assigners is that you show that you're, you're, you're competent to begin with and that you're trying to get better. Because I truly believe that um, none of us have ever reached our, we don't reach our peak. You know, there's not really a peak. Everybody can get better. All right. Um, no matter what you maybe have accomplished. So as soon as you stop and think that, hey, you know, I kind of know everything, uh, you're in for some trouble, all right? So your assigners, you know, they see those things. They see that you're the kind of guy that takes, you know, if you're open and you didn't have something blocked, you take assignments, right? Even if it's not the best assignment. Maybe you're a varsity official and you expect to work certain level of games with certain types of teams, you know, the better teams or something like that. Well, you know, hopefully you get a lot of those kind of games. But if he gives you a junior varsity game or a freshman game or he gives you a very low-level varsity game because he needs somebody to do that, you don't complain about it. You know, you're open. You go do it. All right? Um, and you, you don't say anything. 
You know, you just do those games. If you're that kind of guy, assigners know that, right? They know the guys that help them out. They know the guys that just take care of business. They know there's guys that call up assigners and complain about their schedules and um, complain about the kind of games they're getting or wondering why they're not getting this assignment this year because they got it last year. I hear this from assigners, all right? And I've, I've, I've seen it, all right? You don't want to be that guy. That's not a way to move up. Do you think that, like, if you didn't get... Um, you know, a certain postseason assignment and you call up an assigner you complain about, do you think that's going to make them want to give that to you? Probably not, all right? If they didn't want to give it to you to begin with, um, there is probably a reason. Now, if you want to know the reason, I guess that's legitimate to ask them. But sometimes, you know, maybe, maybe you just try to be better. If somebody thinks you deserve something, they give it to you. If they don't, you don't get it, all right? Do you always have to know the answer to that? I don't think you always do. You know, it, it kind of is what it is, all right? Um, that's the way I look at it. Um, uh, so being punctual, yeah, you mentioned that, and partners, not turning down assignments. Yeah, those are all good things that definitely help you to move up. Um, and, and I say that with, um, you know, some background, I guess. You know, I mean, I've, I've moved up pretty well in uh, the high school ranks here in the state of Michigan, and I've done a couple state finals. So I, 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 guess, I, I guess I know what it takes to do that. And I'm always willing to talk to people about that. And I want guys that I know that are good, you know, like my partner and, and other people I work with or other people in my association, I wish them the best and I will do whatever I can to help them to move up as well. You know, if their goal is to work at state finals, I'll tell them what I think is important. I mean, I'm not saying I have all the answers and um, I'll do whatever I can to help make them a little bit better so that they can reach their goal. Um, I guess that's the other thing you need to do. I mean, you know, that's that's the thing that does help you move up is you help the people that are coming along, you know, behind you a little bit. Um, you know, you don't want to, it's not like, well, if he gets that, I don't get it. Um, you know, there's always, there's guys that think that way. That's not a good way to think. And, and that's kind of like you're competing against all the other umpires. We all know that we compete against other umpires for assignments. All right. But you can't have every assignment. And sometimes other guys are going to get it. And there's lots of good umpires out there that deserve assignments as well. So you just have to kind of understand that, that sometimes other people have to have the opportunity. You help them. I always like to help guys because I think it's great if I can see them succeed and reach their goals. That There's a, a lot of satisfaction in that. And also, if they're local and guys that I might work with, well, I want them to be better. <laughs> because when, like I say, when I'm going into battle with some guy, I want to feel like I'm, I'm confident with this guy on the field. He can handle stuff, and he's been there, and he knows what he's doing. Um, I want those guys on the field with me, all right? So if I can help them along um, to, to be better that way, I'm going to do it, all right? So, yeah, that's a good topic there, uh, Todd, I, and I appreciate that. I think those are some things to think about, um, particularly for guys that your primary um, area is high school baseball. Um those are definitely some things that uh, can help you. So again, thanks, Todd, for that uh, for that question and that email. And uh, hopefully I kind of touched on a few things that you might have been thinking about. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's talk about preseason preparation. Are you getting yourself ready for this upcoming season? Have you uh, set some New Year's resolutions about what you're doing as far as your umpiring? We talked about that in previous episodes. Hopefully you have, and you're just going to try to stick to them, right? Three things to think about. Rules study. Are you looking through your rule books? NCAA umpires have gotten the rule books, you know, already. I know I have, If as long as you signed up early enough. The rules test opens up this coming Monday, January 6th, for um, NCAA umpires. Last two weeks. Even after that, you should be studying your rule book. There's some changes this year um, on a few things um, for NCAA umpires. Um, when you study your rule book, how do you do it? You know, I, do you read it straight through like it's a book? That's maybe not the best way to do it. I mean, it's better than not doing it at all. Or do you look at situation by situation or certain rules? Um, you're not going to take in a whole lot if you're just uh, just firing through the book. Um, you know, maybe you're going to look at obstruction rules one day, or there, you know, maybe you're going to look at interference rules. Maybe you're going to uh, um, look at you know catch no catch type rules. Whatever you want to do, you need to have a, a focus each time, and then work your way through the entire rule book. It might take you a little while to do it, but you got to kind of have a plan for that. All right. If you have a case book, you should be looking at those particular cases because that's really, I mean, it's really application, right? Knowing the rule and being able to recite it or something, that is nice. All right. But how you apply it on a baseball field is the most important thing. So you should be studying your rule books, obviously getting ready for college tests and um, your high school tests that will be coming down the line. But this should be kind of a, uh, shouldn't just be those windows of time where you're taking the test. You should be making it more of a habit. Conditioning. Another thing we got to be doing for preparation. I've talked about that on a several occasions. Are you doing something? Hopefully you are. Think about the kind of movements that you make on a baseball field. The short sprints that you make, the kind of turns that you make when you're working the bases. You should be doing exercises that help you um, be you know, strengthened and conditioned to do those kind of things and um, having the flexibility so that you're not going to get injured, okay? Think about the way you work the plate, squats that you do, and uh, the kind of pressure that you put on your body when you're doing um, a plate job, all right? So you should be doing some exercises that help strengthen your body and also increase your flexibility so that you are ready uh, when you have your first games, all right? And then uh, scrimmages and stuff. Can you uh, contact some local schools? Could be high school, could be colleges, and uh, come in and see some pitches. Uh, if they have pitchers thrown, which they always do, usually inside. So, you know, contact them and see. If they're doing some kind of scrimmage in an indoor facility, or if you work in a warm climate and they're actually outside uh, scrimmaging, Get out there. That'd be a great way to get some some base work in. But uh, definitely seeing some pitches uh, before 
your first assignment is useful. Even if you are a collegiate umpire, and that is primarily what you work, you know, seeing some high school pitches definitely can't hurt. I know that's, you know, not quite the same for some of that, but uh, seeing some pitches rather than no pitches is definitely uh, you're better off. So those are a few things to think about here as the calendar is turned to 2020, um, getting yourself ready for the spring because it's going to be here before you know it. Um, guys that work in the warmer climates, you know that teams are going to be down there playing in February. All right. Um, so make sure you're ready to go and that you work out the rust and the kinks and stuff and the layoff that some of you have had uh, since the end of last season. All right. Make sure it happens. So as I've mentioned in a previous episode, uh, one of the biggest changes for 2020 as far as high school baseball rules or federation rules and FHS is the introduction of the player slash DH. And, um, They posed a question in a recent Referee Magazine article about can you courtesy run with a pitcher slash DH? Because, you know, the player DH might prove very useful for a pitcher who hits the pitch count limit and a coach wants to keep him in the game as a hitter, right? Um, So what happens when a player DH who's currently in the game as both the pitcher and the DH gets on base? um, Can the player DH have a courtesy runner? You know, if this speed up rule is adopted in all the states, of course, you know, I know it is here in Michigan, so hopefully it is in your state as well. Um, Well, the National Federation of High Schools uh, say that the answer is no, they cannot do that. So um, the rules editor, um, Elliot Hopkins, explained that the player DH occupies two roles. When he's in the field, he's playing a defensive position. When he's at bat, or on the bases, he occupies an offensive position as the DH. So when he's acting offensively, he's in the DH role, thus not eligible for a courtesy runner. The same thing could be said for a player that is the catcher DH. Um, He uh, may not have a courtesy runner either. So that's interesting. So if you want your catcher to, to maybe stay in the game for some reason, you know, you're going to put in another catcher. I don't know what. But somebody might do that. They can't do that. This seems like something that uh, easily could pop up in your games, um, especially this first year that this rule is in effect because, you know, people don't know the rule or they don't read it very closely. This is a rule that you definitely need to um, you know read over several times and make sure that, you have it very set in your your head uh, before your first high school games this year, and it might be a really good idea to um, you know type out or uh, reduce down and then laminate a copy of this DH rule from your rule book and have it in your pocket or in your um, uh, you know lineup holder or something like that so that uh, you can refer to it. There's nothing wrong with referring to a rule. Um, NCAA umpires, lots of guys have uh, some laminated copy on very small print, so hopefully your eyes are, are looking pretty good there, uh, of the DH rule, which is very complicated for NCAA, much more so even than this one. So remember, with a player DH, a team starts with nine players, and one of whom starts in both a defensive role and the DH role. So there may be substitutions in the defensive role without terminating the DH role. 
So a player DH who had a substitute in the defensive role may return to that defensive role once and continue as the player DH. A subsequent substitute shifts the player DH into the DH role only. That's kind of how it works, okay? So any substitution into the offensive role terminates the DH role for the remainder of the game. So if the player DH had not used his re-entry, he could still return to that spot and the bat in order, but as a regular substitute and not as a player DH. It's a little complicated, but once you start wrapping your head around it, it makes sense, okay? So, and remember, teams may also still opt to use the traditional DH, whether they have, um, you know, 10 starters, you know, one occupying the DH spot, uh, batting for a player in the defensive spot, just like it's been in the past. Um, both the DH spot and the spot occupied by the player for whom the DH is batting may have substitutes. That's the way it's been as well. With a traditional DH, the DH is terminated when the defensive player for whom the DH is batting or any substitute pinch hits or pinch runs or when the DH of or any previous DH assumes a defensive position. All right, so the traditional DH is not permitted to have a courtesy runner. So that's never been since he never occupied a defensive role. Although he's eligible for a pinch hitter or pinch runner as a straight substitute. You know, and that's always been the case as well. So... Unlike the player DH, an offensive substitution does not automatically end the traditional uh, DH. So those are some things you got to think about and make sure that uh, you're familiar with. But, you know, interesting question about the courtesy runner. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't, you know, I guess that makes perfect sense, the explanation. But uh, definitely something that uh, I, I bet you a few of you are going to have pop up in some games that you have this coming spring. Recently, Referee Magazine and NASA released their 2020 Baseball Umpires Quiz for NFHS, or Federation, you know, high school rules. It's, it's a 20-question quiz, and uh, I've decided that I'm going to go over five questions um, in the next, you know, four episodes, so that'll get us to 20, and just kind of uh, read the question and the potential answers and the correct answer. And you can kind of listen along and see if you can pick the correct answer before I say it. And then, uh, you know, give you a little commentary on any of the particular questions. So let's start from the top. Question number one says, Better one asks for and receives time to talk to his third base coach. While they are conferring, the defensive coach motions for the pitcher to meet him at the foul line. As the offensive conference breaks up, the defensive coach returns to his dugout. So, is the answer A, only a defensive conference is charged? Or is it B, only an offensive conference is charged? Or is it C, both a defensive conference and an offensive conference are charged? What do you think? Correct answer is B, only an offensive conference is charged. Um, if the defensive coach would have uh, had him cross the line or he had crossed the line, then he would have been charged with conference. And also, remember that if he takes too long you know, and doesn't break up his conference 
right as the other one is ending, then he easily could be charged with a conference as well. So that's question number one. Question number two, with no runners on base, batter one takes a called third strike. Batter one heads for his dugout, not realizing that the catcher dropped the pitch. Catcher then throws the ball wildly toward first. Better one heads for first and makes the base safely. Here are your choices. There are three. A. B1 is out only if he reached the dugout before breaking for first. Is it B? B1 is out only if he left the dirt circle of the plate area before breaking for first. Or is it C? B1 is out regardless of where he was before breaking for first. What do you think? Well, if you said A, you are correct. B1 is only out if he reaches the dugout before breaking for first. This is the case in Federation rules. Remember, if you are an NCAA umpire, uh, if he leaves the dirt circle, then he can be declared out. Um, the same in pro rules, I believe. Question number three. With R2 on second, batter one grounds to the shortstop. The shortstop feels the ball and chases R2 back towards second. He then swipes at and misses R2 and throws wildly to first into dead ball territory uh, before um, the shortstop throws the batter one, you know, the runner, touches first. So what do you got here? Choice A, B1 is awarded second and R2 is awarded third. Choice B, B1 is awarded third and R2 is awarded home. And choice C is the base is awarded our judgment call depending on whether or not the umpire rules that chasing R2 back to second is a play. Well, if you said B, you are correct. B1 is awarded third and R2 is awarded home. Main reason being that he reached first base before the throw. Remember that, right? That's a very rare play, but uh, if that were to happen, that would be the ruling. Okay, on to question number four. Davis starts the game as the player slash DH, pitching and occupying the third spot in the batting order. In the second inning, Johnson enters the defensive role as pitcher, and Davis shifts solely to the DH spot. In the third inning, Davis returns to the mound. In the fourth inning, Keller bats for Davis. In the next half inning, Davis goes to the mound to pitch. Here are your choices, two of them. A, legal. Davis still has one-time reentry rights. Or is it B, illegal. Davis has already used his reentry rights. What do you think? Correct answer, B, illegal. Davis has already used his re-entry rights. This is our new pitcher or player slash DH rule, um, which you should be familiar with. We already talked a little bit about that earlier. And then finally, question number five, uh, the final one for this week. With uh, R3 on third and one out, B1 flies to deep left field. The third base coach grabs R3 and pulls him back to third to tag up. The ball falls in, and B1 ends up at second. Here are your choices. A, R3 is out, and B1 remains at second. Is it B, R3 is out, and B1 is returned to first? 
Is it C, both R3 and B1 are out? Or is it D, the ball's dead immediately upon the coach assisting the runner? Well, we know it's not D. It's not dead immediately then. If you said the correct answer was A, you are correct. R3 is out as soon as we have that interference by the coach. And B1 remains at second because, well, he didn't really do anything wrong, did he? So that would make perfect sense. So that's what we got. Those are um, the first five questions from this quiz. Uh, hopefully that was a little bit interesting, something a little different. And I'll go through five other questions uh, in our next episode. For this episode's Umpire Spotlight, we're going to look at Emmett Ashford, the first African-American umpire in the major leagues who worked in the American League from 1966 to 1970. Uh, Emmett was born November 23, 1914 in Los Angeles. His dad was a policeman uh, who ended up abandoning his family when he was young, leaving his uh, mother to raise Emmett and his uh, brother Wilbur. Um, Emmett uh, was a hardworking young man, earned money selling magazines as a cashier in a supermarket, and he attended Jefferson High School. He ended up being the co-editor of the school paper. He played baseball and ran track, and he was a senior class president. Fairly smart guy. He attended uh, Los Angeles Junior College and Chapman University, and he had a goal of becoming a semi-pro baseball player. Uh, this was in the 1930s, you know, during the Depression times, right? In 1936, he got a pretty solid job. He became a post office clerk, a position that he would hold for around 15 years. And uh, when he was playing semi-pro baseball, uh, he turned to umpire and went asked to fill in for an umpire who didn't show up for a game. Again, common theme that seems to happen frequently. During the Second World War, he served in the United States Navy, and uh, he... After the war, he was stationed in Corpus Christi, Texas, and he heard an announcement on the radio that Jackie Robinson had broken baseball's color barrier. Well, realizing that he wasn't going to become a Major League Baseball player, he decided that he wanted to become the first African-American Major League umpire. So in 1951, he took a leave of absence from his California post office job, and uh, he started to moonlight as a as an umpire for the the local softball league, um, and his colorful style included you know his personal trademark, uh, which was when a batter received a base on balls instead of simply calling ball four like we all should do nowadays. He uh, would grandly intone, "Ball four, you may proceed to first base." So you know, <laughs> I don't suggest doing that now, but it worked for him, right? So he left Santa Ana to umpire in the Southwestern International League, becoming the first black umpire um, in the traditionally white professional baseball system. So that was, you know, a barrier that he broke. When he was offered a full season umpiring job, uh, he resigned from the post office. So after the Southwestern International League folded midseason, Ashford joined the Arizona Texas League. And he moved on to the Western International League in 1953, and then he was promoted to the Pacific Coast League in 1954. He spent 12 years in the PCL. He became known for his exuberance, his showmanship, and his energy, even interacting with the crowd between innings, which, again, I don't suggest that you do now. But, again, it worked for him. Different time. All right. 
during the off seasons, um, he refereed um, Pac-8 basketball. It was Pac-8 back then, and football games. Um, he also, you know, he also did those, and he umpired in the Caribbean Winter Leagues, and then he ran several uh, umpiring clinics. Um, and then in 1963, he was named the Pacific Coast League's umpire-in-chief, making him responsible for training crews and advising the league on disputed games and rules and those kind of things. Um, quite a significant position for an African-American at that time. By the early 60s, um, many West Coast sports writers began to suggest that you know he'd be promoted to the major leagues. I mean, he certainly uh, looked like you know somebody very capable of that. And then in September of 1965, his contract was sold to the American League. Um, he made his debut at um, in Washington D.C. at uh, Griffith Stadium on April 11, 1966. Uh, he quickly became quite a sensation, becoming known for sprinting around the infield after four balls or um, plays on the bases. Um, he brought a new style to being an umpire. Um, he wore jewelry, including uh, flashing cufflinks, and he wore you know, polished shoes and fresh pressed suits. Um, some observers believe that his race prevented him from working in the majors earlier than he did, which it did. Let's not kid ourselves, right? But others maintain that his flashy style uh, delayed that, which maybe it did, okay? Because um, a lot of people didn't really like that. And, you know, umpires, as we know, probably shouldn't be drawing attention to themselves. I mean, we're just supposed to do our job, do a good job, and hopefully they don't really notice us and the game just kind of goes along, right? Anyway, the Sporting News said that uh, for the first time in the history of the grand old American game, baseball fans may buy a ticket to watch an umpire perform. That is kind of cool, but that's definitely not something that we really want. Anyway, he was a left field umpire in the 67 All-Star Game. He worked uh, five games of the 1970 World Series, uh, but he didn't get to work the plate, but still that's quite an honor. And then he... Um, he reached the American League retirement age of 55 in December 1969, uh, but he did um, work one more season in 1970 before uh, retiring. Uh, after he retired, uh, Bowie Kuhn, the commissioner of baseball, uh, hired him as a, um, a public relations advisor, and he spoke at clinics, particularly on the West Coast, and he even went to Korea one time. Um, he served as the umpire-in-chief for the Alaskan Summer League for three years. That's interesting. Um, he was like in TV commercials. He was in some movies on TV shows. He was even in What's My, you know, What's My Line, you know, the Jacksons, Ironside. Um, he uh, was a contestant back in 1955 on You Bet Your Life. Okay, so, you know, interesting. And he definitely had the personality for those kind of things. Uh, unfortunately for him, he, he died when he was 65. He had a heart attack and died out in California. And uh, Bowie Kuhn was still the commissioner, and he had a statement, and it read, As the first black umpire in the major leagues, his magnanimous nature was sternly tested, but he was unshaken and uncomplaining, remaining the colorful, lively personality he was all his life. All right? So um, he was, uh, Kuhn, um, Bowie Kuhn went to his... Um, funeral and eulogized him and uh, then his remains were cremated and he's um and interred in cooperstown new york which is you know where he probably should be as well as far as uh, a hall of fame umpire i think he definitely has done enough to deserve that right 
And it seems like the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame should seriously consider him for induction. Um, obviously, he can't be there to speak about it. But, you know, he's a significant person in the history of, uh, of baseball, particularly in umpiring. So that is our umpire spotlight for this week. Emmett Ashford. Thank you once again for listening to this episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. Uh, As always, I appreciate you sticking with me until the end. Uh, Things are going pretty well with this as the new year flips over. We've got over a thousand listens. Uh, We've added another country to our international podcast. We have some listeners in Italy now. I know they do play some baseball down there, and they've actually done fairly well, if you recall, in the World Baseball Classic um, the last couple of times. So, you know, there's some baseball to be played there. Um, we're um, looking to, you know, do some bigger and better things here as the podcast progresses uh, throughout 2020. I know I keep talking about having some interviews, but I got to line some of those up and get some things going that way. Um, lots of preseason preparation things that uh, we still need to do. Um, before our seasons really get going for some people in February, but for most of us in March or April. Um, If you have any uh, feedback for me, uh, feel free to send that to me via uh, an email at spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com. You can tweet me. My handle is at Kevin R. Weber, 1B in Weber. Or you can find me on Facebook. Uh, I have my Facebook page for this, the, uh, The Hammer Podcast. Uh, that's you know, or you can just search Facebook and you can find it and join the Facebook page. I send things out on there and always uh, give some information if I've got a new podcast out um, when it drops on whatever listening platform that you like. So I appreciate uh, you sticking with me, um, you know, up to this point, and um, hopefully uh, you'll continue to enjoy the podcast for this 2020 season. Till next time, keep calling strikes.